what I want us to deal with at this time is uh, the principle that states that the historical flow method is the key that must be used in order to understand properly Bible prophecy. Now um, I'm not going to follow what we find in the outline. Uh, you can read what we have in the outline under this point. What I'm going to do is present the material that is titled The Dangers of Futurism. And as soon as we finish this material, you're going to be able to answer all of the questions that are found in the syllabus. And so we won't follow the syllabus, but we are going to cover the material that is found there in the syllabus. And so we are going to take a look at the material that is titled The Dangers of Futurism. At one of our workers' meetings recently, here in the conference that I work in, we were discussing the signs that indicate that Jesus is soon to come and that he is even at the door. The pastors were presenting different signs in the world that indicated that the event is imminent. And in the midst of the conversation, one of the pastors stood up and confidently affirmed, I'm not too concerned about what's coming or how he's coming, my only concern is who is coming. At the time it sounded like a nice soundbite, but upon closer reflection it is a very dangerous thing not to know what's coming and how Jesus is coming. I might say that several of the pastors said a hearty amen to this statement, perhaps thoughtlessly. Now some Christians believe that Jesus Christ will return before the tribulation. Other Christians believe that Jesus will come in the middle of the tribulation, and others believe that Jesus will come at the end of the tribulation period. Now as Seventh-day Adventists we believe that Jesus will come at the end of the tribulation period. We believe that God's people will go through the end time tribulation. But most Christians today do not believe that. And you might be wondering, who cares? whether the coming of Jesus is pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. Isn't it only important that Jesus is going to come at some point? Who cares whether it's before, during, or after the tribulation? Well, if you tune in your television on Sunday mornings, you will receive a steady diet of end-time scenarios. And all of these end-time scenarios are very, very similar. The predominant one is what we call futurism. It is the standard view of conservative Christians, such as evangelicals, Baptists, and people of a charismatic persuasion. Although there are minor variations in details, they are in harmony when it comes to the common denominators of this view. It actually characterizes most of the television evangelists that come across the airwaves on Sunday. Now what is this futurist view of Bible prophecy that has been embraced by most conservative Christians? The fundamental view of futurists is that God has two radically different plans, one for literal Israel and the other for the Christian church. In other words, God's plan for the Jews and God's plan for the church are radically different from one another, and they are mutually exclusive. 
Now I want to share with you what the scenario of futurism looks like. Basically the entire scenario is based on their understanding of the prophecy of the 70 weeks as well as their understanding of the millennium, and we'll deal with the millennium a little bit later on. You see for them the 70 weeks are to be understood as 490 years, as Seventh-day Adventists believe. But they believe that the 70 weeks begin in the days of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah went to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem in the year 445 B.C. As Adventists we believe that the 70 weeks begin in 457 B.C., but they believe that the 70 weeks begin in 445 B.C. Now they believe that the first 69 weeks, the first 483 years, flow consecutively without interruption, and they end according to them in the year 33 with the first coming of Jesus. Now we know that it's the year 31, but they begin later and they end two years later than what Adventists believe. Now they teach that when Jesus came, he offered the Jews his literal kingdom, and the Jewish nation rejected the kingdom that Jesus offered them, and therefore Jesus had to go to a plan B. Because the Jewish nation rejected the Messiah, none of the events of the 70th week could be fulfilled, because Jesus came at the beginning, at the end rather, of the 69th week. And so because the Jews rejected Jesus, the 70th week could not be fulfilled. You see what they do is they separate week number 70 from the previous 69 weeks. Basically they say that the first 69 weeks flowed and ended with the coming of Jesus in the year 33, but then the 70th week could not be fulfilled immediately after because the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. So what God did was to suspend his plan for the literal Jewish nation. In other words, he put it on hold. Week number 70 was never fulfilled consecutively with the first 69 weeks. And so they say that during the last 20 centuries, God has been dealing with the Gentiles or with the church, what they call the church age, or the period of the times of the Gentiles. The plan for the Jews has been put on hold, and for 20 centuries plus, God has been dealing with the church. And week number 70 has never been fulfilled yet. It is severed or separated from the first 69. Now, they believe that when the Jewish state was reestablished in 1948, that this was a very significant event. In fact, they believe that this is the most significant event uh, that indicates that the coming of Jesus, that the rapture is imminent, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. They say this is the catalytic event that is going to indicate that Jesus is coming very, very soon. And then, of course, in the 1967 war, when the Jews recovered certain portions of territory, they said this is further evidence that the coming of Jesus in the rapture is very imminent and is going to happen very soon. So they believe that the plan for the Jews was suspended at the end of week number 69, the 70th week was never fulfilled immediately after the 69, 
for twenty centuries plus God has suspended his plan for the literal Jewish nation and now he is ingrafting the Gentiles which is known as the church age or the times of the Gentiles. Now they believe that when the times of the Gentiles come to an end, when the church age comes to an end, the prophetic clock for Israel will begin to tick again and the 70th week will begin to be fulfilled with an interval of over 2,000 years between the first 69 and the 70th week. They believe that the event that will mark the beginning of the last week or the last seven years of Daniel 9 is what they call the rapture of the church. According to them the times of the Gentiles will come to an end, the church age will come to an end when the church is raptured to heaven invisibly. People will suddenly vanish, drivers will disappear, pilots will vanish, and there will be chaos and disorder everywhere. Believers will be caught up to heaven, and those who are not ready, along with the literal Jews, will be left behind. Now one of the great proponents of this is called Hal Lindsey, and he calls the rapture the great snatch. He also wrote a book titled, Vanished into Thin Air. In other words, people are going to disappear everywhere on planet earth in the rapture. They will be taken to heaven with Jesus. And then they believe that the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn from the earth. And the events from Revelation 4 verse 1 to Revelation 19 will begin to be fulfilled. They believe that Revelation 4 verse 1 where God says to John, come up hither, that that expression, come up hither, is referring to the rapture, that John symbolizes the church, and it's talking about the rapture of the church. And so they believe that from Revelation 4 verse 1, all the way through Revelation chapter 19, it deals exclusively with the Jews after the rapture of the church. Now they believe that during the last seven years of the prophecy of the 70 weeks, during this last week of the 70 week prophecy, at the beginning a personal antichrist, an individual, will rise to power, and he will rule over a ten nation Roman federation, which they understand to be the ten horns of Daniel 7, and the ten horns that we find in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. And so they believe that this Antichrist will rise to power and during the first 1260 days of his dominion things will go quite well for the Jews. In fact he's going to sign a peace treaty with the Jews and he will favor them. He will rebuild the Jewish temple and the sacrificial system will be reestablished and all will appear to be well. But lo and behold what the Jews don't realize is that this individual, this nice person during these three and a half years is the Antichrist, but he's hidden his identity. At the beginning of the final 42 months, because they separate the 1260 days from the 42 months, they take the 42 months to be the last three and a half years of the 70 week prophecy, so after the 42 literal months, or uh, at the beginning rather of the 42 months, the ruler of the ten nation federation who is the Antichrist will unveil himself and will reveal his true colors. Lo and behold, 
He is the predicted antichrist of scripture. He will be a blasphemous individual, he will blasphemy, blaspheme Christ, and he will persecute the Jews. He will sit in a literal Jerusalem temple that has been rebuilt, and will have a literal image built of himself, and he will command everyone to bow down and worship the literal image, and whoever doesn't worship will be killed. He will put a tattoo on the forehead or on the right hand of individuals who do not worship the beast or his image. They teach that during this time 144,000 converted Jews will become Billy Grahams and will preach against the Antichrist and launch a merciless persecution against the Jews. This will be the time of Jacob's trouble. They believe that during this time literal Moses and Elijah will resurrect and then they will be killed for witnessing against the Antichrist. At the end of the 42 months or the last week of Daniel 9, uh, the Antichrist will come to his ignominious end. Jesus will come gloriously, literally and visibly from heaven with those that he took to heaven seven years before and he will destroy the Antichrist, and he will deliver, deliver literal Israel from the time of Jacob's trouble. Then Jesus will establish on earth his literal kingdom for a thousand years, the millennium, and people will live here in their mortal state, and Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. So is the futurist scenario that is being fed to millions of people every Sunday morning on television, and it is believed as gospel truth by conservative Christians all over the world. Now let's ask as Seventh-day Adventists, what implications does this interpretation of prophecy have for us? I have several things that we're going to take a look at. It has severe implications for Seventh-day Adventist uh, theology, Seventh-day Adventist mission, and the very existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So let's take a look at a few things that happen with Adventist interpretation when we adopt, or if we should adopt, the futurist scenario. Point number one, if the fulfillment of Revelation 4 through 19 is future, with literal Israel, after the church is gone from earth, what relevance do the three angels' messages have today? None. Because if Revelation 4 through 19 is going to be fulfilled in the future with the literal Jews, after the church has gone to heaven, the three angels' messages apply to that time, not to this time. So what the devil is telling people, and I've had people tell me this in Revelation seminars, they say, well we don't worry about Revelation 14, that happens after the rapture. And so what has happened, the devil has muted the very central message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ellen White has expressed the importance of the three angels' messages. Let's read these statements. The first is in volume 6 of the Testimonies, pages 17 and 18. She says, the three angels of Revelation 14 are represented as flying in the midst of heaven, symbolizing the work of those who proclaim the first, second, and third angels' messages. All are linked together. The evidences of the abiding, ever-living truth of these grand messages that mean so much to the church 
that have awakened such intense opposition from the religious world are not extinct. Satan, now listen carefully to this, Satan has, is constantly seeking to cast a shadow about these messages, so that the people of God shall not clearly discern three things. Their what? Their import. What is meant by the word import? Their importance. What's the second thing? Their time, that is when they're fulfilled, and what? Place. Where? When? Where? And their importance. The devil is trying to cast a shadow over them. And she continues saying, but they live and are to exert their power upon our religious experience while time shall last. Praise the Lord for that. In another statement that we find in early writings, page 256, this is a significant statement. You know Ellen White says that most Adventists are going to forsake the three angels' messages. But there will be no decrease in the people that are in God's ranks because multitudes will come into the Adventist church. She says this, many who embraced the third message had not had an experience in the former two messages. This is talking about 1844. See, the, the, the Millerites proclaimed the first two, and there were people who were being converted that had not had the experience in the first two. Now notice Satan's reaction. Satan understood this, and his evil eye was upon them to overthrow them. But the third angel was pointing them to the most holy place, and those who had had an experience in the past messages were pointing them the way to the heavenly sanctuary because we're going to notice that the third angel's message is closely related with the most holy place of the sanctuary. And then she says this, Many saw the perfect chain of truth in the angel's messages, and gladly received them, how? In their order, don't preach number three before you preach number one. In their order, and followed Jesus by faith into the heavenly sanctuary. And now she says this, These messages were re represented to me as an anchor. This is one of the places where we got our name from. As an anchor to the people of God. And then she states, those who understand and receive them will be kept from being swept away by the many delusions of Satan. How important are the three angels' messages? If you do not understand and receive them, you will be deceived by the devil is what she's saying. And so they're vitally important. So what does the devil say? The devil says, no, those don't apply to now. Those are for the Jews during the tribulation. Don't worry, folks. Everything is okay. Because the devil wants to mute the importance of these messages. So that's the first thing that futurism does to the message of the Adventist church. But there's a second point. Futurism changes the time for the appearance of the Antichrist. It changes the timing. You see, for us as Adventists, the Antichrist appeared immediately after the Roman Empire was divided into ten kingdoms, right? It's simple. Lion, Babylon. Bear, Medo-Persia. Leopard, Greece. Dragon beast, Rome. Ten horns, Rome divided, and then among the ten, the little horn, immediately afterwards. It's quite simple. And so we know that the timing of the rising of Antichrist was shortly after the demise of the Roman Empire. It would arise where the Roman Empire had been divided among those kingdoms. And we know that this 
this uh, Antichrist would rule for 1260 years, beginning in 538 and ending in 1798 with a deadly wound that was given by France. But now listen carefully. If the Antichrist did not appear shortly after the Roman Empire disintegrated, he is still in the future, right? Because that's, that's the way they do. They also create a gap. See this, this futurism is, is a gap theology. There's a gap between week 69 and week 70, and they say that Daniel 7 was fulfilled in sequence until you get to the fourth beast. And then they say that Rome was never divided. Now I don't know how they can reach that conclusion, but they say that that part of the prophecy was not fulfilled, and of course the little horn was not fulfilled either. So there's a gap between the legs and the feet of over 2,000 years. Because they don't see the historical flow method, how prophecy flows without gaps and without interruptions. And so if the Antichrist did not appear, in the sequence of this prophecy, then the Antichrist is still future, and if the Antichrist is still future, the papacy has nothing to do with the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 7. And therefore the papacy has nothing to do with the change in God's holy law. Are you understanding this? It has, your interpretation of prophecy has huge implications. You know, people say, oh, don't study, don't talk to me about prophecy, talk to me about the love of Jesus. Well, talking about prophecy is talking about the love of Jesus, because Jesus loves you, he doesn't want you to be deceived. He wants people to be saved, but for that we have to know Bible prophecy. You see, futurists say that Daniel 2 was fulfilled, how? With a, actually, it's fulfilled with a gap between the feet and the legs. They say that the head of gold is Babylon, the breast and arms of silver is the Medes and Persians, the belly of bronze is Greece, the legs of iron are the Roman Empire. But then they say that the flow of prophecy is suspended. The ten toes represent a ten nation federation that will arise in the future under the leadership of Antichrist, and so there's a two thousand year gap between the feet and the legs. Who does that hide from view? The Roman Catholic papacy. That's right. So secondly, the second big problem with this view is that uh, it hides the specific time when the Antichrist would arise. Point number three, futurism changes the place for the appearance of the Antichrist. The place. You see, for us, the Antichrist is a counterfeit system of Christianity that arose in the church shortly after the disintegration of the Roman Empire. And we believe that the temple where the Antichrist sits is what? Is the church. We talked about that. It's the church. And we believe that that temple is not a literal temple in the Middle East. It is the church of the Middle Ages. The temple is the Christian church. But what does futurism believe? Futurism believes that the Antichrist is going to sit in a literal rebuilt Jewish temple after the rapture for three and a half literal years. If this is the case, then prophecy is not fulfilled in Rome, prophecy is fulfilled in the Middle East. 
Thus the fulfillment of the prophecy and the papacy is hidden from view, from view because people are looking in the wrong place. Are you understanding this point? It's a serious implication. If you believe in futurism, well you're saying, well, it's going to be a future antichrist who will sit in a rebuilt Jewish temple uh, over in the Middle East, this is after the rapture of the church, and so what happens? What is hidden from view is that the real antichrist arose in Rome, and you can't see this because you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking to the Middle East instead of looking in Rome. Point number four. Futurism hides the manner of the appearance of the Antichrist, the way in which the Antichrist will appear. You see, Adventists, along with the Protestant reformers, believe that the Antichrist is a system of counterfeit Christianity that sat in the spiritual temple of God, which is the church. And as I mentioned, Paul constantly mentions that the temple of God is the church. It is not a temple, literal temple in the Middle East. Now, if the Antichrist will be an individual, then he cannot be a worldwide system. If he is a blasphemous atheist, as many are teaching, then the Christian church has nothing to do with the fulfillment of these prophecies. So does futurism teach uh, something that, that hides the manner or the way in which the Antichrist will appear? Sure, they're expecting a blasphemous Antichrist over in the Middle East after the rapture of the church. So they're looking in the wrong place, but they're also looking in the wrong way. Because scripture says that the Antichrist, the manner of his coming will be, he'll sit in the church claiming to be Christ. He will arise from within. In other words, he's an insider. Now let's notice what Dave Hunt has to say. By the way, Dave Hunt is a dyed-in-the-wool futurist. But he got the identity of Antichrist right. Listen to his description of the Antichrist. He says, while the prefix and why the Greek prefix anti generally means against or opposed to, it can also mean in the place of or a substitute for. For example, the word Antipas. Have you ever heard of Herod Antipas? Do you know what Antipas means? It means that he ruled in place of his father. The word pas is father, and anti is in place of. He ruled in place of his father. So anti does not mean against. Anti means in place of. So he continues saying, the Antichrist will embody both meanings. He will oppose Christ while pretending to be Christ. Instead of a frontal attack or assault against Christianity, the evil one will pervert the church from within by posing as its founder. He will cunningly misrepresent Christ while pretending to be Christ. And here comes something very interesting. And right here is where the plot thickens. If the Antichrist will indeed pretend to be the Christ, then his followers must be Christians. So Dave Hunt is a futurist, but he got it right. Most futurists believe that the Antichrist is a nasty individual, an atheist, who's going to appear in the Middle East, and he's going to raise his hand against God, and he's going to blaspheme the God of heaven. Some atheist type. But scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches that he will arise from within. That is his manner of appearance. So does the manner of the appearance of Antichrist have anything to do with being deceived concerning this? It most certainly does. Now the next point is that futurism, this is number five, 
Futurism changes the parties in the final conflict. Who are the two groups that will be involved in the final conflict? You see, as Adventists we believe that on one side there will be the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The dragon represents Satan, yes, but working through the civil powers of the world. The beast represents the Roman Catholic papacy. And the false prophet represents apostate Protestantism. And we believe that these three powers will be global in scope. Those will be the enemies of God's people in the end time. But what does futurism believe? Futurism sees it differently. They say that the final battle would be between the Jews and the Arabs in the Middle East. And perhaps the Arabs and the Muslims are going to join with the Russians to persecute the Jews. If this is true, then we're wrong in saying that the parties in the controversy are the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet against all of those who are opposed to the kingdom of Christ. In other words, futurism gets the parties involved in the final conflict wrong. And so people are looking for, for this uh, uh, war in the Middle East where, uh, where you know the Antichrist is going to be uh, joining the Arabs and he's going to be joining the Russians and, and perhaps the Chinese to war against literal Israel, to war against the Jews. And meanwhile the Antichrist sits in Rome and the United States, the helper, is taking steps to help this power and nobody can see it because they're looking in the wrong place. The devil is an expert at what we call the counterplay. You know what the counterplay is? Some of you might know a little bit about football. Uh, I'm not talking about Australian rules football. I'm talking about football as it's played in the United States. The counterplay is very simple. See, the linemen, they block for the, for the back, for the runner. And so what usually happens is the linemen will pull in one direction to block when the runner is going to come to that side. But the counterplay is when all of the linemen run this way, then the defense says, oh, the runner's coming this way, and then the runner goes the opposite direction. That's the counterplay. And so the devil is an expert at, at uh, creating counterplays, showing the Antichrist in the wrong place, appearing in the wrong way saying that the parties are not the parties that prophecy says they are. But let me say that futurism also blurs the issues involved in the final conflict. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that the issues in the final conflict will be the law, the Sabbath, and worship. But what futurism believes is that the war that is going to take place will be in the Middle East and it will be primarily an anti-Semitic war. In other words, it's a war against the Jews. Now let me ask you, are there good and bad Jews? Yes, are there good and bad Arabs? So if you say that the final war is uh, the Jew, the Arabs against the Jews, you're saying that it's good people and bad people against good people and bad people. The fact is that scripture teaches that the final war will be the righteous against the unrighteous. And it doesn't matter which ethnic group you belong to, the issues are spiritual. They have nothing to do with what your ethnicity is. And it has nothing to do with the oil of the Middle East. 
which is one of the favorite topics of those who teach futurism, that the final war is going to be a fight over oil, or it's going to be a fight against, of the Arabs against the Jews, it totally misses the point that the struggle is going to be over God's law, over His Holy Sabbath, and over the issue of spiritual worship. It hides the issues in the great controversy. Point number seven. Futurism obliterates the on-time appearance of the remnant church. See, the devil wants to hide when the Seventh-day Adventist church was going to appear. Let me, just, um, let me just give you the scenario coming from Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12 we have a clear flow of historical events. We have, first of all, a woman. The woman has a child in her womb. Now let me ask you, who is that child who is in the womb of the woman? The child is Christ. And what, who is the woman? The woman is not Mary there. The woman represents the church. Which church? New Testament church or Old Testament church? It's got to be the Old Testament church. Because we can't have a New Testament church before Jesus is born. So let me ask you a dumb question. Who lives first, the woman or the child? Of course, it's the woman. Did the woman exist before the child? Of course. Did Jesus come from the lineage of Abraham? Did he come from the lineage of David? Did he come from the Holy Line? Yes, the woman represents the Old Testament church that brings Jesus Christ into the world. So Revelation 12 begins with the Old Testament church. Then the child is born, that's the birth of Christ. Then it says that he ascends to God into his throne. That's the ascension and the installment of Jesus in heaven as our high priest. And then after that, we find uh, the church fleeing to the wilderness for 1,260 years. Are you seeing the flow? And towards the end of the 1,260 years, the earth helps the woman. Now what is represented by the earth that helps the woman as this period of persecution is taking place? The earth represents the territory of the United States. Now in Revelation 13 you have a beast that rises from the earth. That's the nation that rises from, and I hope you read the book uh, on Jekyll and Hyde. Did you read that book? Uh, you know, there I show that the earth represents the territory of the United States before the nation is formed. Was this a refuge for people who were persecuted in Europe? Yes it was. During, toward the end of this period people migrated to the United States to find freedom liberty of conscience, to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. So in other words, towards the end of this period, the earth helps the woman, the territory of the United States, and then I want you to notice that the very next stage is that the dragon is enraged with the woman, and he goes to make war with the remnant of her seed. So let me ask you, when would we expect the remnant church to arise? Would it have to be after the 1260 years? After the earth helped the woman? Absolutely. It would have to arise shortly after that. You're not going to have a gap, a gap of several hundred years. No, because prophecy is fulfilled in sequence. That's the historical flow method, in other words. So, after the 1260 years, it says that the dragon is now wroth with the woman and goes to make war with the remnant of her seed. Where are the remnant of her seed to be found? On the earth because the previous verse says the earth. Where is the earth? The territory of the United States. Would it be after 1798? 
Yes it would, in the sequence, and what would characterize the remnant church? Oh, they keep the commandments of God, how many? Ten, and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ, and what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? It is the spirit of prophecy. The question is, did such a church arise after 1798 in the territory of the United States that teaches that the law of God has to be kept and has a prophet in her midst? There's a church that appears shortly after 1798, the Seventh-day Adventist church. But now listen, if Revelation 12 deals with events in the future after the rapture of the church, what happens with the identity of God's remnant church, when it was going to appear, where it was going to appear, and what characteristics it was going to have. It totally disappears. The devil wants to hide the moment when God's remnant church was going to appear on the scene of human history. Is it important whether we believe in the historical flow method or whether we believe in futurism? Yes. Listen folks, it's a matter of our existence as a denomination. We are a prophetic movement. We originated as a result of the study of Bible prophecy and our destiny is clothed with Bible prophecy. So we cannot be a, a church that simply preaches the love of Jesus. It's important to love Jesus, don't get me wrong. We can't simply preach what other churches are preaching. God has given us a special message and a special mission for this time. And woe to us if we don't fulfill that special mission and preserve that special message because we would have no reason whatsoever to exist. Now the next point is even more serious. Futurism destroys the 2300 day prophecy. You say, how is that? Well, let's read the verse first of all. It says, and he said unto me, unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be what? then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now there are three key factors involved in our interpretation of this prophecy. Number one, the 70 weeks are the first part of the 2300 days and began in 457, correct? That's the Adventist view. The 70 weeks, first 490 years, are the first portion of the 2300 days and the 70 weeks begin in 457 BC. That's the first point. The second point is that the 2300 days are really symbolic of what? They represent years. And the third point is that there is no gap between week 69 and week 70. Those are three non-negotiable items. Number one, the 70 weeks are the first part of the 2300 day prophecy, and they began in 457 BC. Number two, the 2300 days are symbolic of years, and number three, there is no gap between week 69 and week 70 like futurists say. Now I might say that in Seventh-day Adventist church there are scholars who have questioned seriously our interpretation of the 2300 days. Some notable names are people like D.M. Canwright, A.F. Ballinger, Fletcher, Desmond Ford, and more recently Dale Retzlaff. There must be something that the devil doesn't like about the 2300 day prophecy. 
that he would take scholars within the church that would be critical of this one particular point of Seventh-day Adventist theology. Now listen carefully. A wrong beginning and ending date for the 70 weeks destroys the 1844 date. In fact, separating week number 70 from the previous 69 totally obliterates the date of 1844. So what does Satan want to hide? He wants to hide the date for the beginning of the judgment of the world. You say, how is this? Well, we believe that the 70 weeks are 490 consecutive years. Then 1,810 years more leads you to October 22, 1844. Futurism says, no, 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 first 69 were fulfilled, 2,000 year gap, and then the 70th week begins. Let me ask you, what happens when you create that parenthesis or that, that gap? 1844 is destroyed. Because 1844 depends on the consecutive fulfillment of the 70 weeks. If you have a gap, then 1844 is a non-entity. But the judgment is not the only thing at stake, folks. The pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church discovered a whole cluster of truth shortly after 1844. For example, they discovered that the law of God is still binding. They discovered that the Sabbath is still binding. How did they discover that? Well, when they entered the most holy place with Jesus, what's in the most holy place? The ark. So all they did was say, okay, what was in the ark? So they go and they look at the, at the shadow in the Old Testament. Oh, the Ten Commandments were in the ark. Well, then they must be in the heavenly ark too. And so they weren't nailed to the cross. And then they started looking more carefully. They say, now wait a minute. Uh, what was in the center of law? The Sabbath. And if the earthly sanctuary was a reflection of the heavenly one, and there's a heavenly ark of the covenant, well, the Sabbath must be there too. And so slowly but surely, after 1844, they discovered all of the distinctive doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that distinguish us from every other church. They discovered the state of the dead. They discovered the judgment. They discovered health reform, believe it or not. And the gift of prophecy helped explain what had happened in 1844 and the mission and message of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You say, well, how is health reform found in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? Well, you remember there was a little pot of manna? What did God want to teach through the manna? Well, first of all, he wanted to teach Sabbath observance. Have you ever noticed that Sabbath observance is highlighted in the most holy place? You know, Ellen White had a vision where she saw that there was a halo around the fourth commandment that highlighted the fourth commandment. Where did she get that idea that, that, there's, uh, that the Sabbath commandment is highlighted? It's very simple, because in the Ark of the Covenant, you have two Sabbath symbols. You have the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, and you have the pot of manna. And incidentally, the manna was meant to test Israel to see if they would walk in God's law. And the Sabbath will be the final test to see if people will walk in God's law. Are you with me? And so the Sabbath as a test is found in the Ark of the Covenant. Health reform. You know, you read Numbers chapter 11. It says there that, that God gave Israel manna to teach them a simple diet. But they say, oh no, we don't want manna, Lord. We want the stuff that we had in Egypt. All that rich food is what we want. But God through the manna wanted to teach them the simplicity of a diet. He wanted to teach them health reform. What about the state of the dead? Is that found in the most holy place? 
It most certainly is. You say, how? Well, first of all, Aaron's rod that budded represents Christ. It was a dead rod, and by a miracle it sprouted to life. By life that was in itself. Jesus said, though I be dead, yet what? Yet I live, he said in Revelation chapter 1. And so the rod that budded miraculously represents Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. But even over and above that, the judgment concept of the Adventist church is the only concept that will help us understand the state of the dead. And let me explain how. Let's take Adam as our example. Adam was the first individual to be judged when the judgment began in 1844. Ellen White says, beginning with those who first lived on the earth. Jesus judges each successive generation and he ends with the living. So the first person to be judged was Adam. Now let me ask you, where was Adam in 1844? Adam was in the grave, disintegrated. So how could Adam appear before the judgment seat of Christ in 1844 if he was disintegrated and totally non-existent? How could Adam appear there? He appeared there through the records of his life in the books. You see, God has another me in his books, in written form. And so Adam, when God said, Adam, you're the first to be judged. I'm thankful that it's not in alphabetical order. <laughs> says, Adam, appear before my judgment seat. And so, what the angels do is they bring the DVD. I'm dramatizing for effect the DVD of Adam's life. And so on a large screen, the life of Adam is shown in living color, the record that was made during his life. So is there a certain sense in which Adam is appearing alive before the judgment seat of Christ? He's not alive in person, but the record was made while he was alive. And so what is seen on the screen is Adam while he was alive, even though personally and physically he is what? He is dead. Are you understanding me? And so the record of Adam is examined. And it's found that he repented of sin, he confessed his sins, and his name is retained in the book of life. Now here's my question. How do Christians believe? When, when does the judgment take place according to Christians? It's all the second coming. He will come to judge the living and the dead. It says in the, in the credo. Uh, so they say, you know, the judgment is when Jesus comes. And what do they believe happens when a person dies? When a person dies, if they were good, they go to heaven. If they were bad, they go to hell. If they were half bad, they go to purgatory. And if they had not reached the age of accountability, they go to limbo. It's amazing how people invent all different kinds of spheres and, and levels. But here's my question. If Adam is judged in 1844, he's the first to be judged in 1844, did he go to heaven when he died? He couldn't have gone to heaven when he died. If he's, would God take him to heaven before he's judged? Absolutely not. He's judged in 1844, and then when will he be taken to heaven? He will be taken to heaven when Jesus comes. So is the state of the dead doctrine involved in the idea of the judgment, the Adventist idea of the judgment? It most certainly is. It's the only idea that makes sense, is the Seventh-day Adventist view of the judgment. Because we teach that an individual dies, 
they appear before the judgment seat of Christ when they're judged, they didn't go to heaven or to hell, because in that case when they died they would have already been judged. And so then they're judged, and when Jesus comes, then he gives a reward that has been decided in the judgment, in the pre-advent judgment. So all of these truths are clustered in the most holy place, and our pioneers discovered them one by one after 1844 because they entered the most holy place, and the most holy place teaches these particular doctrines. Now, what are the particular doctrinal points that the Christian world despises? How about the law? Oh, it was nailed to the cross, right? How about the Sabbath? I was for the Jews. How about health reform? Oh, you can eat your pork chops, not a problem. The prayer sanctifies the pig. What do they say? What do they say about the state of the dead? Say, well, the dead are not dead. They're either in bliss or they're in misery. Are those the very doctrines that are distinctive to the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Yes. Folks, the doctrines that make us what we are are centered in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And the pioneers discovered it when they entered in 1844. So if you destroy the date 1844 by destroying the prophecy of the 70 weeks, you are destroying Seventh-day Adventist theology. Now, there's another thing that's important here. After 1844, a method of interpreting prophecy was discarded. You know that the Millerites taught that Jesus was going to come uh, on October 22, 1844, and Jesus didn't come. Do you know what method Miller and uh, those who preached with Miller used to reach that date? The historical flow method. They used historicism as their method to reach the date October 22, 1844. 70 weeks, 1,810 years, and then they, they also appeal to the Hebrew feasts, you know, which give you the, the day and the month of the Day of Atonement. And so they said we have the day and the month from the Hebrew feasts, we have the year from Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, and so they say October 22, 1844, the judgment is going to begin. But Jesus didn't come. So do you know what the devil did? the devil discredited historicism as a method of interpreting prophecy. Let me read you some statements. One is from Richard Kyle. He's not an Adventist. He used to be a futurist. He used to be a Plymouth Brethren. Uh, and he had something very interesting to say in his book, The Last Days Are Here Again. He says, despite its visibility, the Millerite movement had little influence on subsequent end-time thinking. In other words, Millerism didn't cause very much of an impact in future end-time thinking. It did, however, have three long-term effects. One, Millerism spawned the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Two, it discredited historicist premillennialism. That's our view, historicism and that Jesus uh, is going to come before the millennium. And notice it says, it discredited historicist premillennialism, causing it to fade out almost entirely after 1844. And number three, the Millerite fiasco demonstrated the perils of setting definite dates for Christ's return. In another statement that we find in the same book, page 102, 
he says this, the great disappointment of 1844 had decimated historicist premillennialism. What did the disappointment do? It, it almost well nigh obliterated historicist premillennialism, which is our method of interpreting Bible prophecy. But now notice what he says, but a futurist premillennialism called dispensationalism soon arrived on the scene. So what did the devil do? When Jesus didn't come, he said the method didn't work. He so threw out the baby with the bath water. He wanted to get rid of our method because he knew that he could get rid of our, me of our message. Now notice the words of another futurist. This is Thomas Ice. What he says is very icy. Uh, this is in his book, uh, The Tribulation Past or Future, page 6. And he actually mentions the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He says, historicism, once the dominant view of Protestants from the Reformation until the middle of the last century, he's writing, this is in the uh, 1990s, so the last century would be the 1900s, so he says, historicism, once the dominant view of Protestants from the Reformation until the middle of the last century appears to exert little attraction as a system of prophetic interpretation. To conservative Christians, Outside of the Seventh-day Adventist circles, within evangelicalism, during the last 150 years, futurism has grown to dominate and overcome historicism. Wow. Futurism has done its work of practically obliterating the historical flow method of interpreting Bible prophecy. According to Ellen White, this shift in understanding in, is the direct result of Satan's desire to get rid of historicism as the proper method of interpreting Bible prophecy. And now I quote from early writings 256 and 257. She says, after the great disappointment in 1844, Satan and his angels were busily engaged in laying snares to unsettle the faith of the body. He affected the minds of persons who had had an experience in the messages and who had an appearance of humility. Some, listen carefully, some pointed to the future for the fulfillment of the first and second messages, while others pointed far back into the past. What is the, what is the devil doing? He's saying, no, these things are going to be fulfilled in the future, or they were fulfilled when? In the past. Declaring that they had been there fulfilled. These were gaining an influence over the minds of the inexperienced, and unsettling their faith. Some were searching the Bible to build up a faith of their own, independent of the body. Satan exalted in all of this, for he knew that those who broke loose from the anchor, see there's our anchor again, that those who broke loose from the anchor, he could affect by different errors and drive about with divers winds of doctrine. Many who had led in the first and second messages now denied them, and there was division and confusion throughout the body. So the disappointment led Christians to forsake historicism or the historical flow method as the method of interpreting Bible prophecy. And by the way, historicism is, is the only way that we can interpret prophecy correctly because it comes internally from Scripture. I mean, it's so simple. Lion, Babylon, Bear, Medo-Persia, Leopard, Greece, Dragon Beast, Rome. 
Rome is divided into ten kingdoms. Then Papal Rome arises, rules from 538 to 1798. And then, when this beast has its deadly wound, I saw another beast rising from the earth that had two horns like a lamb, but at the end it speaks like a dragon. Even the United States rises at the moment when the first beast falls. And so with historicism you know exactly where you are in the flow of history at any given moment. But when you create huge gaps, you don't know where you're at, because you have no reference point. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So our method is the method, the historical flow method. And incidentally there's another method called preterism, which is that uh, the prophecy of the little horn was fulfilled with a nasty individual called Antiochus Epiphanes in the Old Testament, and that the beast of Revelation 13 represents Nero. So all of these prophecies were fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes and with Nero in the Roman Empire. They have no relevance for us today. What is the devil trying to do? He's trying to make Bible prophecy irrelevant. If there ever was a church that has a message to share with the world, it is the Seventh-day Adventist church. If there ever was a time that we need to share the book, The Great Controversy with the World, it is now. Because that book is the best presentation in the world on the historicist method or the historical flow method of explaining and interpreting Bible prophecy. And so folks, God has called us to do this very thing, to proclaim the three angels' messages to the world. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.